0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus in Africa, we're wondering if Zambian midfielder Rachel Kundananji's record-breaking transfer fee will lead to more investment in the women's game.
1: I don't think they... Federation takes it as serious as it should because the money is a determining factor. A lot of these girls sacrifice their time, sacrifice going to school, getting proper jobs to playing for the game that doesn't even pay them, unfortunately. We're staying with football, but we're also talking about the role of
0: sports in building peace.
2: It deals with fair play, comradeship, like you're in this together. It also is about diplomacy. Sport has been deployed in kind of, you know, when, when countries are trying to figure out their conflicts, It's something that transcends borders.
0: And there's a conference in Panama to try and put out the illicit trade in tobacco. It's Thursday, the 15th of February. First, we talk about football. Yes, I know, the African Cup of Nations is over. And Nigeria didn't win. Neither did Bafana Bafana. But there's great news for the women's game, or oh, so we hope, because an African woman has become the most expensive player ever in women's football. Say her name. It's Rachel Kundananji. Her skills have just been bought by the American team Bay FC for $860,000. Now, I know that if we compare that to the millions spent on buying male footballers, $860,000 is a drop in the ocean. But it just goes to show how far the women's game has yet to go. We'll have a fuller discussion about that in a moment. But let's just acquaint ourselves with Rachel's achievement. Six years ago, she was playing for Indeni Roses in Zambia's Copper Belt. The Americans bought her off Madrid CFF. And last season, she scored 33 goals in 43 games for Madrid. She played for Zambia in the Women's World Cup, scoring goals. But unfortunately, the Copper Queens didn't make the last 16. Who is Rachel's inspiration? I'll say my mom because I've learned a lot from her. I've learned working, you know, and never giving up on anything. No matter how many times you fail, you need to continue chasing your dreams. Football pundit Ashley Nakazwe has been following Rachel's progress very closely.
1: I'm still wondering how she wasn't African player of the year last year, because she literally outplayed all the africans she was the top second goal scorer in the spanish league and she was consistent in not only in the league but also the national team having also scored at the world cup but yeah we didn't go to the round of 16
0: <laughs> so you're saying that she was basically overlooked and undervalued
1: 100% when i look at the the shortlist that we had she should have been on it
0: so tell us about the criteria that determines the value of a woman football player and is it different to male players
1: I think where we are now, there's not so much of a difference in terms of the value. It it all goes up to the consistency, the number of goals played, uh, how clinical the player is, the fitness of the player, all of that a role.
0: But at the moment, we're not seeing the same investment, right, in between uh, male and female players. The levels are not the same. Or are they getting there?
1: Unfortunately, it's not. I hope that this is a step towards that because everywhere it says women's football does not bring revenue the women do not deserve this i mean when we as we're speaking about the women now we still don't know the date of the women's uh, africa cup of nations but we know it's going to be this year all of those things play a role in terms of where these players get money in terms of sponsorship when it comes to the men and the women it's not the same but i hope this is going to be a step in the right direction let's talk about rachel Kundananji. Tell us about her. Oh, such a phenomenal player. Little girl from Indeni Roses, now playing in the States. She's a go getter. She's a fighter. In 2022, I watched an interview of her being overlooked in playing at the Wafcon. And she said something very significant when she said, sometimes to succeed, you need to fail. So she counted her missing out playing the Wafcon as a failure. But her now being where she is, is like a living testimony of her hard work and focus and her determination because even when she went to play at, at FC Elba and when she went to play at the, in, in Spain from Kazakhstan, she had a dream that is coming true now, even after being overlooked. Just spell out her
0: achievement for us. Oh my God. She's the most expensive female footballer in history.
1: Yeah. I mean, we can look at the, her time at, at her recent club, you know, just from last season itself. that speak for themselves. Having played 29 games and scoring 25, that is something. So she's, she's one of those players that are silently doing what she needs to do. And then I think this is just her time now.
0: OK, so the most expensive male players in the world are like... Millions and millions and millions of dollars worth. So Bay FC, American National Women's Soccer League, paid $860,000 for her transfer from Madrid. Yes. So I'm saying this is a statement not of her value, but of how women players are valued differently to men.
1: You know what? It goes back to saying how many of our African players are still not even getting what she's getting. Two weeks before she was signed, Assisat was also signed to the very team. Assistant who is Africa's number one. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it raises a question of what the value is of the women. There's a difference between what Asisat gets and what Rachel is going to get. She's broken this record. What
0: are they paying for? What are the qualities of her as a footballer that they're paying for?
1: They're paying for her hard work, her consistency, her fitness. They're paying for everything right. she's going to bring to the table. <laughs> you, you seem to have so much to tell us. Can I just
0: plead complete ignorance of uh-huh. rachels? You're going to have to hold my hand here on this. And I and I love football, so this is also for our listeners. You know, you, you spell out for us what position does she play, for instance.
1: She brings a lot from from the midfield as a striker. You know, as a team player, as a leader, her leadership skills also play a role into um, what Kundanaji brings to the table. So,
0: is she an outlier or are there players valuable, brilliant, and um, overlooked and undervalued in general across the women's game?
1: There's a lot of players that are overlooked. I mean, let's speak of Tabitha Chawinga. I'm a really big fan of her. I always feel like she's one of the players that are still very, very much overlooked in the African continent. Who does so, she play for? So I, she's from Malawi. Right. And she plays in uh, Italy.
0: And her sister also plays. You're saying
1: the the sister plays in the National
0: Women's Soccer League. Right. So we're talking about the highly skilled but undervalued African women players. Where are their talents being developed? How are they being developed on the continent?
1: On the continent, I can speak for instance for us who are on the Sadiq region. I mean, you come from here, so you know Right. So it starts from Korsafaa. What Kosafa is doing in developing the women's game plays a huge role to how the girls are performing when they go to play international, right? Let's take, for instance, what is happening with the Sundowns ladies' team. They play Hollywood Super League that here in South Africa, and then they go to play Kosafa. Then they play the the Caf Women's Champions League, and they are number one. So the development that is happening within the regions before even going to play Continental is playing a very big role in terms of the development of women's football. So how developed is the infrastructure?
0: in African football to support the growth and development of more female players across
1: the, the continent. I had an opportunity to travel to Morocco when there was the WAFCON, right? And I was very impressed with their, their performance centre and what they're doing for their women's game. You can see from what Morocco is doing that they're not only investing in the women, but also in the infrastructure, which helps them to have more ways to train and, you know, be better skilled players. So that's one of the things that we are lacking overall on the African continent, having more infrastructure to be able to support the level of play that the women's game is at now.
0: Now, you know, whenever there's a major tournament, male or female, there's often complaints about players' bonuses being paid, the amount of money they're being paid, the money not getting to them, dissatisfaction with the way in which the game is being managed, uh, the leadership uh, within the country, you know, the national leadership of football. All of these things don't seem to be getting better. I just I'm and, just thinking about the women's um, tournament last year. Some teams were saying they're not going to play because this is just there were there was lots of complaints about it. This year with Afcon, uh, we didn't hear so much of it, but it was still there.
1: I mean, I passed a couple of jokes online. I think it was when Ghana, the men's national team, lost. I said, "Oh, that money should go to the girls, right?" Because when you look at how every other time. Like, for example, let's go to Cote d'Ivoire where the, the tournament was being hosted, the AFCON. The women's team had to back out of a competition because they don't have money. But the federation was able to host an entire tournament. Of course, they obviously did generate revenue and profit off the AFCON. My question is... Are they going to do better now for the women? Because there's a couple of tournaments happening this year that are for the women. Would the Cote d'Ivoire national team compete? So at the end of the day, it goes back to what the federations think of of these women because the money is given from FIFA. Where does the money go? I remember, I'm not going to say which federation, but I remember one time I had an opportunity to work in the marketing department and I had a very cool campaign for the women. The marketing personnel of the, the very federation asked me why I'm not offering this to the men's team. But the men don't need the money. Already just for them being men, they already get it. So it goes back to the bonuses. Is it an agency for the girls to get the bonuses whenever they play? I don't think they federations or whoever takes it as serious as it should because the money is a determining factor. And all of these girls sacrifice their time, sacrifice going to school, getting proper jobs to playing for the game that doesn't even pay them, unfortunately.
0: Okay, you've mentioned a couple of women that are coming up. Tell us a little bit more about the talent that you're observing, that you know of, names that we should be looking out for that could be record-breaking in the way that Rachel is.
1: Okay, there's a footballer that I really like. Her name is Jessica, uh, plays here in South Africa. Really, really good player. And I always say, whenever she's going to play for Banyana Banyana, she'll be that top player. Same as Zander, we've got Ivarinka Tongo there. Very, very good player. So there's a lot of players that I'm seeing that will play a significant role in the national teams and some of them are already testing the waters in the in the senior teams. There's a lot of them.
0: Ashley Nagaswe is based in Johannesburg. But I think we should hear from Rachel again. Every time I'm watching Chelsea playing, I see the like, camera following the play. I'm like, one day I just want to play football and the camera just come on my face and show my face on TV. And my man sees I'm like, oh that's my child. i love how rachel gives her mother her flowers every time and there's a feature on rachel on the bbc sport africa website it's called zambia's forward path to breaking the women's transfer record go and have a look and a listen we're staying with football but talking about the role of sport in building peace the recently concluded Africa Cup of Nations tournament has been called the best competition ever. It also revived exactly that talking point can sport? Play role in building peace. It comes up a lot because often the players on the field may represent nations and communities at war with each other off the pitch. Members of the DRC squad called for peace in the eastern part of their country ahead of their game with Ivory Coast. They urged fans to use the same energy they bring to supporting the beautiful game to speak out about the war. And also, who will forget the moment Didier Drogba called on warring factions to stop fighting during the civil war in Ivory Coast a few years ago? If you haven't seen it, Google it. It is heart-stopping. So what is it about the sporting arena that emboldens sports stars to speak out when perhaps they wouldn't in other situations? Sean Jacobs has some ideas about this. He publishes the online magazine Africa is a Country, and he's also Professor of International Affairs at the New School in the United States.
2: I think there is definitely a special way in which sport speaks to people. So firstly, sport is a shared experience. And by that shared experience, what it does to people is that it fosters like a sense of togetherness while people are watching, you know, spectators. Secondly, it sort of reminds people that they share there are certain things in common. It's also associated, and we, people can debate this, and now with VAR, you know, it, it leads to all kinds of complications, but people think about it as it deals with fair play, comradeship, like you're in this together. It also is about diplomacy. Sport has been de- deployed in kind of, you know, when, when countries are trying to figure out their conflicts. So it used as a tool during diplomacy. And I think finally, there's something about it being a universal language. It's something that transcends borders. If I'm like in, in South America somewhere, if I just say something like Diego Maradona or Pele, you know, people know what I'm talking about, even if I don't speak their language.
0: There are two famous examples of sport as a unifying feature on the African continent. The one, Didier Drogba, during the, I think it was the 2005 African Cup mm-hmm. of Nations, where he pleaded with the two sides in the civil war to please come together and to unite and forgive each other. And the nation came together because of the sporting team consisted of all these people from different parts of the, of the country. And then we have Nelson Mandela wearing the the rugby captain's jersey oh. during the World Cup then. And rugby, of course, you know, being a sport that was largely associated with white supremacy and the, the Africana government at the time. Tell me, in your view, how well Did those gestures work?
2: So if you take Nelson Mandela and 1995 first, because that's the one that that everybody always references when they talk about whether or not sport has power to unite people, for people to develop like a a sort of common idea about themselves or as the nation. The 95 World Cup, as people remember, South Africa had an all-white team. The fans at the rugby stadium, they were still mostly white. And they... Also, many of them still came, often with the old South African flag, singing, you know, when the when the anthem, because South Africa at that point had a new anthem, which is a sort of combination a mixture of the, the two, of,
0: yeah. But remember, right, it was
2: wh- the, the anti-apartheid, yeah, and then the the new the the, the, the anti-apartheid song and the old apartheid anthem.
0: But it wasn't an all-white team. Chester Williams played in that team. These were not white.
2: Well, one one black player, so <laughs> okay. one black player, okay. one swallow doesn't make what is it a summer? So True. it's like. It's a very white team. And I think I understand the the symbolic gesture, which is at the time there was a there was, you know, white South Africans. It was I think that incident was or that moment was mostly about white South Africans. And they wanting or needing to identify with the new South Africa, with having a black president. And so there was a lot of unease in white society. I think people forget white South Africans were stocking up, there was mass, you know, immigration emigration and so nelson mandela who's a you know he's a he's a unique political leader i think he saw the opportunity him and his advisors saw the opportunity for him to go to the field wear this team's jersey and a cap and go into the stadium of, of mostly white south africans and sort of showing i'm your president too and then chanting his name and so that moment then is remembered as this kind of you know sports the power of sports to sort of deal with divisions within society but I think what can also happen with that is that people can overemphasize or see too much into it because everybody knows that I think it was two years after that ninety-five game, Mandela actually he took the South African Rugby Board to court because of its failure to transform, and he he appeared in the court and people remember this mostly as Mandela subjecting himself to the, you know, to the the legal process. But what it really was was Mandela criticizing rugby for failing to change at the time. If you look at the Ivoirian case, similarly, the pictures are very dramatic of Trochba grabbing, you know, telling the camera in the changing room after the game against Sudan, and you know, turning the ca- and speaking into the camera and sort of imploring the rebels on both sides to stop fighting. That makes for really great television. The truth is also that a couple of months later or a year later, the violence came back, and then five years later there was an election, and the then president Bachbo, he refused to accept the result, and then the the war began again. It's true that these moments happen, people stop. It has a major effect, but I think we also should be careful to not overemphasize like their impacts. I actually think in the case of South Africa that the 2019 World Cup, if you think in terms of sports in South Africa or the most recent one in Paris last year, for me had way more symbolic impact as a kind of unifying object because in the case of last year's tournament, you and you're talking about the Rugby team, World
0: the, Cup now, right?
2: The Rugby World Cup. Yeah, way more I for me I felt I, I identified more with that victory than I identified with 95 because it was way more representative of like the majority of South Africans. The the game itself rugby itself wasn't anymore just a white sport. It was now a sport that belonged to South Africans
0: which it always was in a way, right? Be- because there's a misunderstanding yes. about rugby and the nature of rugby in South Africa. Yes, yes. In the case of uh, the apartheid South Africa, it was used as a vehicle through which to express Africana nationalism. Not that black people didn't play rugby. They were yep. excluded from playing rugby. Now, the Democratic Republic of Congo striker recently, well, during this World Cup, was making the point that, you know, people should exercise the same energy that they do in um, arguing about football, they should do the same thing with regard to talking about peace. These are all members of the DRC squad <clears throat> use this as an opportunity to to shine the spotlight on the eastern region of the DRC, which has been troubled for very, very many years. I'm just wondering whether sports stars entering the arena In this way, the arena of activism, we see it in other disciplines. We see it with, you know, musicians and people like those doing it, but not so much sports. Are they gaining more clout? Are they gaining more confidence to enter this arena?
2: I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there's some exceptions if you think of, say, someone like Marcus Rashford, the English player. Who involved himself in sort of local politics in the UK about um, feeding you know, schemes? Yeah, feeding schemes for working class um, children. There are some footballers who've spoken out about racism in Britain, Black Lives Matter in Europe, where the you know where the game has been characterized by lots of racism by fans. So yes, that is true. I think in Africa, in the and the Afcon, the recent uh, African Cup of Nations, there was very little political activity or or footballers speaking out on the field. I mean, the DRC, when the DRC players did that in the semifinal, it was a bit of a shock because there's been some reporting that there were fans who were showing solidarity, say with Palestine, but that they were often turned away at the stadiums or they were told you can't show that flag. So it became as a shock in a tournament where there was, we once saw very little explicit politics. That the DRC players done that, and I think they should be. You know, one should commend them. I think people forget the best example. I still think of how people have used. You know, athletes getting to the front is the, is the South African, um, the South African boycott, the boycott against South African apartheid, and I think it had a really strong impact on the morale of white South Africa during apartheid. So people have really strong feelings about sport, and sport is then often tied to. National achievement and nationalism. So you can have other kind of sanctions, economic, you know, political sanctions, and also commodities. You can say people, you know, people do not kind of access to certain things. But when people feel they're being denied access, they're being excluded from the international community of sports. It has a major impact. And I've actually always been surprised as to why we don't see more sports people or sports teams, you know, making statements, standing up for people's rights in various places. <laughs>
0: So when we say sport has the ability to unite people and foster social solidarity, are we actually saying football? Because I don't think we talk about things in quite the same way for hockey teams or for the badminton badminton team or, you know, even long distance running, I think.
2: No, football is the only sport on the African continent that has this kind of ability to, you know, get grasp people's attention, people's emotion every two years when this tournament is played. I can guarantee you that most Africans, this is where their attention is going to be.
0: That's Sean Jacobs, Professor of International Affairs at the New School in the US. <laughs> Panama is not a place we report from very often. In fact, I'd hazard a guess and say we've never reported from there, but I speak under correction. But a conference on ending the illicit trade of tobacco was held there earlier this week, so we thought we should take a look in because the conference brought together delegates from around the world to discuss how to stop progress made in banning tobacco products from going up in smoke. Dr. Adriana Blanco-Marquesa told me that one in ten cigarettes in circulation is illegal. Dr. Adriana has been at the forefront of efforts to mitigate the harms of tobacco smoking in Uruguay, her country, and also internationally. She is currently the head of the Secretariat of the World Health Organization Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. We began our discussion with an explanation of the architecture in place to try and stop
3: illicit tobacco trading. We have two meetings in Panama. One is the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and the meeting is called the Conference of the Parties to the Convention. And that was done last week. And the one that is going on this week is the meeting of the parties to the protocol to eliminate illicit trade in tobacco control. These are two international legally binding treaties that were the convention was adopted by the World House Assembly in 2003 and it entered in international force in 2005. It's a treaty that today has 183 parts. So what
0: what do these treaties intend doing? Specifically
3: today's one, rather, the illicit trade of tobacco. Illicit trade is a problem that, undermines the advances that the world have seen because of the implementation of the Convention uh, on Tobacco Control. And one of the main articles in the convention is about prices and shows that increasing taxes on these products is a good way of making decline the the consumption. And usually the illicit trade is used very frequently by the industry itself to make the governance be afraid that if they raise taxes, the illicit trade will be increasing. Not because there is a direct link, because there is not a direct link between the increase on taxes and the illicit trade. Even though it's an incentive, there is not the cost because the cost is much more linked to the way that the, the countries organize their taxes and also about the level of corruption that you have in the country. Stopping the illicit trade is going to support the advancement on tobacco control.
0: Is that where the suggestion that big tobacco, which are the five largest tobacco producing companies, are responsible or are accused of fueling the illicit sale of tobacco in Africa?
3: There is a lot of documentation that easily you can find publicly available that the big tobacco industries are linked to the illicit trade. Okay, Because for them, this is a way of disrupting the implementation of tobacco control measures So yes, unfortunately, in this kind of illicit trade, the legal actors are also involved in deriving some product to the illicit chain.
0: So how concerning is the illicit trade of tobacco?
3: It's very concerning. It's concerning because it undermines tobacco control measures. Really, the industries try to portray that it's a much bigger problem than it really is. Consistently, we have seen that the numbers that the industry provides about illicit trade are much higher than the real, real numbers that independent studies have shown. Having said that, still there is a reason to stop illicit trade, because illicit trade is depriving countries of the income that they can be taking from the taxes, again, is undermining the tobacco control measures because they put more accessible and more affordable products for the people to, to get. So that undermines many of the measures that countries are taking in order to curb the consumption of tobacco.
0: So what measures have been put in place to eliminate the illicit trade of tobacco and how effective have they been?
3: One of the main measures that is in the protocol to eliminate illicit trade on tobacco products is the track and tracing system. There is a call for a track and tracing regime that it will be composed of national track and tracing system that will be communicated by a global information sharing focal point. That means that in each country, the product will bear a unique identifier that will are allow the country to follow that product throughout the the supply chain, but also will allow countries to collaborate one with the other. When they found illicit product in their countries, they will be able to identify where was that product produced because of the unique identifier.
0: So have these measures been effective if we're
3: still talking about it? Well, yes. The problem is that we just, this uh, protocol, Entry into force uh, five years ago. So uh, still there is in the process of getting more ratification because uh, you can see we have 68 parties in the protocol, but we have 183 in the convention. So we expect that many more countries will be adopting or ratifying the protocol.
0: Why is it so difficult to stop the tobacco producing companies from being involved
3: in the illicit sale of tobacco? Do they hold that much power? Uh, they do. Money is a very important uh, source of power. And these are very rich companies with a lot of links in the country. So, so far for both treaties, the, the convention, the, the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and the protocol to eliminate illicit Train tobacco pro, the main obstacle for the implementation is the interference of the tobacco companies and the interference of other actors that were to further their interests.
0: Just talk to us about how the elimination of the illicit trade of tobacco use will affect the economies of the world.
3: Well, it's thought that one in ten cigarettes that are in, in the world are illicit, so it's an enormous amount of money that the governments are missing, but Beyond the the money that you will save because the the taxes will go to the government and not going to be avoided or uh, evaded, there is also the part of the economic savings that countries will have as a result of less people smoking and therefore less diseases being caused. By smoking. So, in the short term, the biggest gain economically will be the taxes that will be getting into the government treasure. But in the long term, yes. the the savings will be the enormous savings that the health sector will have when we have less diseases related to tobacco consumption.
0: In an ideal world, do you want to see no tobacco, no smoking? And I must tell you, I, I speak as somebody who used to smoke and who used to enjoy smoking. So I didn't imagine when I did that I wanted the world to be free of tobacco, but I was aware of all the dangers of it.
3: My ideal world will be a world where there is no economic power that is profiting from the disease and from death and from the damage of the environment. Tobacco has no place in that ideal world because it's a big uh, economic power that is profiting from the health of the people, especially from our youth, and it's adding one help, let's say, in a bad way to say help, to the destruction of our environment. How close are we to a smoke-free, tobacco-free world? I think that we are much closer now than we were when we begin discussing these treaties, but still we have a long way to go. And mainly this way would be longer or shorter according to the political will of all the governments of the parties to these treaties, to really implement the mandates of this treaty and to avoid this tobacco industry to interfere in public health.
0: Excellent. Dr. Adriana, Dr. Audrey, thank you so much for joining us here on Focus on Africa. Thank you very much for the interview. And that was Dr. Adriana Blanco-Marquesa in Panama. Bella Hassan, Sunita Nahar, and Stefania Okereke were the hands on deck to bring you today's edition of Focus on Africa. Paul Bachibinga pulled the strings to make it hang together. Technical producer Jonathan Greer made sure we arrive in your feed and on air on time. Alice Mudengi is our editor. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time. Remarkable personal stories. Betrayal. It runs through my life and runs through my story. Deep dive documentaries. These children are using their own bags not to carry books, but they carry the drug markets in Sweden on their shoulders. And sport, but not as you know it. There's this massive landslide of myth and somewhere in there is the truth. The BBC World Service tells the world's stories. Search for Lives Less Ordinary, the documentary, and amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.